you're in a parking lot and you're desperately looking for that parking spot that you just can't find because the lot is full. But as you're going around and around, all of a sudden you see that car with the engine running. And you know that they are about to back out and so you stop and you've got your signal light on and you can see that they see you. And they know that you're waiting for that spot. So what do they do? They start adjusting their mirror. They're checking their phone for text messages. They're turning the radio on. They're putting on their seatbelt. And they seem to be just deliberately doing this, not making space for you. In the Journal of Applied Social Sciences, they studied this. And they said that people typically deliberately take longer when they know we are waiting. And the mentality is, this is my space, and we call it territorialism. And we tend to let this kind of thinking migrate over to making space for God in our lives. And we may not be deliberately doing it, but deep down inside us, we're zealously guarding our time, because it's our time. We're putting up subtle walls, so we don't have time, or at least we think we don't have time, to immerse ourselves in God's word. We think we don't have time to pray in a concentrated manner. We think we don't have time to let the Spirit of God examine our character and reshape our life and shape our soul. And so I want to talk to you in this new little series for five weeks. And it's called Five Words That Will Change Your Life. And each week, we're going to look at one word that will have an impact on this idea of making space for God, that will allow us to deliberately and in a healthy way have time for Him. And so the first week and the first word is the word no. Simply the word no. And it's such an important word. When it's used properly, the word no brings liberty, it brings freedom, it helps us set up appropriate and healthy boundaries in life. And you know, I'm thinking about this, that likely for most of us, around the age of two, we just love this word. We used to use this word around the age of two, recreationally and joyfully, you know, eat your peas, no, go to bed, no, clean your room, no, share your toys, no. But as we begin to grow, we learn that people like us a lot better when we say yes, even when we don't perhaps mean it. And we begin to learn as we get older to say yes in ways that create significant problems in life. And so we say yes to people we should say no to. We say yes to schedules. We say yes to meetings. We say yes to obligations, yes to burdens, yes to buying stuff we don't really need, yes to people we don't even really know. And we get our lives crammed full. And we end up living rather godless lives. And what we desperately need in our life is the word no. So God wants to give us this gift to remake our life. Not in order to be lazy, not in order to be self-centered, not in order to just watch more TV or something like that or be on the line more, but rather to make space 
for God. Because if you read the book, what you're going to find in the Bible is that God generally, and I, I say the word generally on purpose, generally doesn't force his way into our life. Generally, he just waits patiently to be invited in. And he'll tap at our heart once in a while, and he waits to be invited in. The Bible illustrates for us some glorious no's, some wonderful no's, some amazing no's. And I could tell you many stories. Let me just give you a couple of quick illustrations of wonderful no's. If you know the story of Joseph, and if if you know this story, you know he's been put in, sold into slavery. And if anybody has a reason for self-pity, if anybody might think to themselves, I just deserve to indulge myself because life is so difficult for me, uh, some people might think he would have a reason. I don't think he would, but some people might think. And he is invited into a relationship that would be marked by sin and would mess up his life totally. And even though it cost him an incredible amount, even though it cost him his freedom for many years in a dungeon, because he knows his identity and he knows his mission in life, he says no. And off to the dungeon he goes. If you know the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a great leader in the Old Testament. He's sent by God to help rebuild parts of Jerusalem and rebuild the city. You know, it's just a little side note that whenever we're called to do something great for God, whether it's a great building project or being a godly parent, which is such an important mission, or to be a volunteer or whatever the case may be, the evil one will try to pull us away from who God wants us to be and what God wants us to do. And so for Nehemiah, it's just very simple. It's people coming to see him and interrupt him. And it all seems on the surface so very reasonable. And most of us to a request like that, especially from people that are sort of seen in the community at that time as elder statesmen, it would just seem so reasonable to say, sure, I'll come. But Nehemiah says, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And four different times they ask him to come down. And four different times he says, no, no, no. No. And here is the idea that I want to suggest to you. That if we are clear on our identity and clear on our mission, we get very clear on when it's time to say no. But if we have to know who we are and we have to know what we are called to, new, to do. And so no is this wonderful gift that God gives to us in order to say no to a lesser good, in order to pursue the greater good that God has called us to. Now next week we're going to look at the word yes. But I believe fundamentally in order to say a healthy yes, you have to be able to say a healthy no. And this morning what I want to do is take a few minutes to learn from Jesus about the idea of the word no. And it's very interesting to me, if you study the four biographies of his life, the four Gospels, in the early stages of his ministry, he doesn't start out with this magnificent, great yes. He starts out with three great no's. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, 
Luke's the third book in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, and we're going to work through verses 1 to 13 together to see these three great no's of Jesus. And I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 for now, but we're going to work through the whole passage. But as I read Luke chapter 4 to you, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And so we often say that Jesus is the Spirit-filled God-man. He was full of the Spirit, and this is why he was able to live the life that he did. And he's led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to fast and to pray, to spend time alone with his Father. And this idea of 40 days is where we get the 40 days of Lent from. And during the 40 days, he is tempted by the devil, and he's not eating, he's fasting, and he's praying. And we are told that he is tempted there. And in verses 3 and 4, we see the first temptation. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man should not live on bread alone. Man does not live on bread alone. And of course, in each one of these temptations, Jesus, because he knows Bible, quotes the appropriate scripture, which is an important thing to remember. But the context of this statement is he's lifting this out of the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book in the Old Testament, where God is, has been feeding the children of Israel. They're on a journey. There's two to three million of them, and there isn't enough food where they are. And so supernaturally, God has been providing for them in the wilderness manna for them to eat. And he does it each day. And he says, I do this in order to teach you that I will provide for you if you'll trust in me. And so here's the first temptation that the devil gives to Jesus, that the devil gives to every one of us. You are what you have. This is the first lie. You are what you have. And the world tries to convince us of this lie all the time. You are what you have. Translation, you should live by bread alone. And Jesus says man does not live by bread alone. And when the Bible talks about bread, it's not talking about the stuff that we put in the toaster this morning for breakfast before we came here. Bread is a symbol for life lived at the level of the acquisition of material goods. Now, there's nothing wrong with material goods until we begin to buy the lie that we are defined by the stuff that we have. That, in fact, we should never have an appetite in life that goes unsatisfied. That our identity is actually found in having a nice house, nice car, nice job, and lots of money. Mirsov Voff in his book Flourishing writes this, when we live by bread alone, there's never enough bread. Not even enough when we make so much of bread that some of it rots away. When we live by bread alone, we always want more and better bread. When we live by bread alone, we always want more bread and better bread. And this is what the world tells us all the time. 
Scott, you are what you have. And this is the first great temptation that Jesus faced. And so the biblical response to this, the biblical practice that comes out of dealing with this kind of deceptive mindset is to do without some stuff. And the Bible word for that is the word fast. To fast means I temporarily refrain from consuming what I ordinarily consume. And the reason I do this, at the heart of why I do this, is to make space for God. In order to find out what happens in my life when I'm not gratifying myself with the stuff that I normally do. And it's not that it's bad stuff. But I'm just going to set that aside temporarily so that I can make space in my life for God. And I'm, I'm going to discover what I'm like when I step away from something I normally do for a little while. And so the context of this passage is that you can fast from food. Now a couple of things about fasting in the Bible. What fasting is not from a biblical perspective. Fasting is not a way to get God to really, really, really give me what I really, really, really want. And some people have this idea about fasting. It's like a hunger strike with God. I am going to make God take me seriously. And I'm going to subtly pressure God to give me what I want. And that's not who God is. And that's not how God responds. Fasting is also not the same thing as dieting. Fa there's no fast. You can't read anywhere in the Bible the fast that's called how to look good in your bathing suit fast. It's not like that in the scriptures. Okay? So healthy dieting as it's needed has some value. But biblical fasting is not about trying to get my body to look better. Now there's probably some health benefits from fasting. But at the core, it's not about looking better. When I fast, I'm dealing with my life as someone who has appetite. And when we come into this world, we come with a whole bundle of appetites. I call it the worldview or the philosophical outlook on life of the cookie monster. Whose life philosophy can be articulated in six words. See cookie want cookie, eat cookie. And you know, there are some very, very intelligent people in advertising who spend almost every waking moment of their life trying to massage that idea in our life. Trying to convince us that you are nothing more than the cookie monster. Oh, Scott, you've got to have a better Oreo. You want the double stuffed one, don't you? Scott, you need to have a bigger house. You need to have a nicer car. In many u universities today, they will teach you that a primary claim of modernity is that the universe is simply a machine. And you are a bunch of appetites. And the way to do life is to just try to satisfy all of your appetites without hurting somebody in the process. And then you are a success in life. What a depressing outlook on life. But what so many of them think. And this is what some people think. As long as I don't hurt anybody, and as long as I can satisfy all my 
appetite I've got it made and Jesus says quite to the contrary absolutely not you are actually an unceasing spiritual being that does not have to be captive to your appetite that in fact God can help you thrive with unsatisfied appetite and so a person might fast from food and biblically there's different ways to do that I won't go into all of them but you could skip a meal you could eat very plain food food for a period of time it's called a Daniel fast you could go for a day or two or longer and if you're gonna go for longer you might you probably want to consult your doctor before you do things like that make sure it's okay for you to do but you do this in order to spend quality time with God you might fast from food you might fast from shopping maybe spending has a hold on you and you need to discover how to spend more time with God and how can I thrive without buying more stuff or you could go on an electronic fast you know that temptation we have when we're with someone and the phone dings with that text and so we disengage from this person that we're with and we basically say to them this text is more important than you and maybe it's time for an electronic fast and this great temptation is to believe that you are what you have and the biblical practice is to do without the second temptation comes along to Jesus in verse 5 the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me so that I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Once again, Jesus quotes scripture and lives by scripture in light of the temptation the second temptation is you are what you do the second great lie of our culture or one of them anyways is you are what you do and we tend to worship many things in our world we have many idols that we worship and one of them that we worship is our work and we make inappropriate times inappropriate sacrifices of our life and our health and our family and our relationship with God all on the altar of achievement and we buy this lie that you are what you do and of course it follows from that if you believe that you are what you do if you don't do much that means you are not much and so the second biblical practice to counter this lie is to do less and in the Bible um, when we think we are what we have we what, what sorry what the first one is the, is to do what we have is to do without the second one is Sabbath when you believe and believe the lie you are what you do the second biblical response is Sabbath which is biblically a holy thing one of the Ten Commandments and it's a regular period of time where you step back from all work where you're not carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders 
where you live as a child of God, where you reconnect with him, where you rest, where you feed on his word, where you invite him to help you keep that time holy. And you say no to a frenzied world. You know, the most famous, apparently, the most famous cartoon in the New Yorker magazine, which is a famous magazine, and they're especially known for their cartoons. And in this cartoon, there's this business person who's on the phone, and he says, no, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? I thought that was funny, but anyway. um, It's interesting to me, if you study the life of Jesus, As Jesus enters public ministry, the first thing he does is he goes into the wilderness. He's full of the Holy Spirit, remember? And so he's listening to his father as he's communicating through the Spirit. And the Spirit leads him into the desert and into the wilderness for 40 days. And as Jesus' ministry launches, what does he do? He doesn't give a whole series of talks out in the wilderness. He doesn't do the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't draw a crowd. He doesn't recruit a leadership team. He doesn't train another disciple. He doesn't write a book. He doesn't heal anybody out there. What does he do? He fasts, he prays, and he's with his Father. And it's a very interesting illustration for people who are tempted to think you are what you do. And if we want to thrive, we learn from Jesus. He does Sabbath every week. He would go to church every week. He would serve in church. And if you watch his life during the week, he would often go away by himself early in the morning or at night. And he would connect with his father. The last temptation is found in verses 9 through 13. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, the evil one said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left them until an opportune time. An opportune time. In other words, the temptations would not end. He'll look and he'll watch and he'll plot. Because the scripture says he's like a roaring lion, waiting to see who he can devour. And then he'll pounce when he thinks it's opportune. But he says to Jesus, wow, Jesus. You could be so awesome. You could be someone everyone will applaud. And the third great lie and the third great temptation is you are what people think of you. You are what people think of you. The first one is you are what you have. And the biblical response is to fast. You are what you do. And the biblical response is to do less, to suffer. You are what people think of you. Be spectacular, Jesus. Please, people. Get them to approve of you. 
And when we have this kind of mindset in life, it becomes like an addiction. And we're always looking for that 15 minutes of fame. And we become a slave to what people think of us. Now, if you think about Jesus, if you think about his life in the four biographies of his life, I can't think of any person that at one point or another, he didn't disappoint. He disappoints all of them at one time. Think about it with me. The crowd is chanting and ranting and raving, we want you to be the king as you're riding into Jerusalem. We wish you'd come in on a white stallion instead of on a donkey. If you'd come on a white stallion, we'd know that you were going to be a political king, a king that will lead us in war against the Romans so that we can become the great nation of the world. Lead us into battle, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. And he disappoints the crowd. The religious leaders who are watching him are saying, you are not living up to the standards of righteousness, the 600 man-made rules that we have. You're not huddling with us, the intellectual and religious elite of this society. You're associating with the riffraff, with the regular people, with the sinners of this society. How dare you? You need to stop doing that. And Jesus says, no. His mom and his brothers come to him and say, you're acting crazy. You need to come home with us and stop all this insanity. And Jesus says, no. Herod says, do some miraculous signs for me so that I can be entertained. And Jesus says, no. James and John says, Jesus, we've been hanging with you for three years now. When you come into your kingdom, can we sit at your right hand and at your left hand, which are the places of honor in, in the society? Can we sit at your right and left hand when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, no. In fact, Jesus disappointed everyone at one point or another in his life except his father. And that's because he was the spirit-filled God-man full of the Holy Spirit. So he disappointed everybody else at one point or another, but he never disappointed his father. And so the biblical practice that evolves from this false thinking that you are what people think of you is do without human approval. Say no to something or to someone that you need to say no to. Remember, that only comes when you know who you are and you know what your mission is. Then you get great clarity on what to say no to. So say no to someone that you need to say no to or that you ought to say no to. And then more than likely, they are not going to be happy with you. And the response is to just be okay with that. Don't desperately try to rebuild your reputation around this no that you had to say. Because you are not what you have. You are not what you do. And you are not who people think you are. You know, Jesus' final no was on the cross. And he's hanging on the cross. They're mocking him. They've spit on him. They're saying things like this to him. You saved others. We saw you. If you think you're so tough, why don't you come down off that cross and save yourself right now? And the thing is, is that at one word, he could have had millions of angels at his disposal 
and he could have come down off that cross. And so they're saying to him, you've saved others, now save yourself. And he says, no. And the reason he says no is so that he can say yes to you and to me. And because of that, our real identity, our real mission in life can be found in Christ. That if you've come to the place where you have acknowledged that the reason he went to that cross is because of your personal sin, that you're helpless to deal with, and that the reason he said that no to the crowd as they mocked him was so that you could be forgiven of that sin when you asked him based on what he did for that forgiveness, and that you received him as Savior and Lord of your life in charge of your life, leading the show, setting the agenda. Just like he listened to his father and was directed by the Spirit, that's exactly what he wants to do in our life. That because of our identity in Christ, the Bible says we are a child of God. We become part of the family of God. We're literally chosen by him. We are adopted by him. That God sees us as positionally holy, not because of anything we've done, but entirely because of Jesus' work on our behalf. We are seen as, as a saint because of Christ. And so God would have us pray. God, would you give me the courage to say no to whatever decision, whatever appetite would crowd out your presence in my life. The Lord's name.